exactly what a philosophy of ministry is. And I wanted to try to commend to you how important it is that there are, and I'm going to use this phrase, conceptual recommendations that you have that help to pass along values in an organization. They are vital to what we do. Um, and yet, we also have to understand not just the, the, the value of those things, but also the limitations. There's seats right up here. Did you love it, Rose? That's the problem of knowing the teacher. He called you out for the people. Um, so we're trying to say that my, my theological truths, the truths that I've come to love about the gospel and about scripture, all those things are absolutely vital to establishing a culture where people can actually grow and change. But the culture is powerful. And so therefore I need more than just data deposits. In other words, the goal is not just to find the most magnificent teaching material that ever could exist and then give it to students. The goal is to create a context in which people change. And what is that context? Well, your philosophy of ministry ought to lead you to that. Because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for changed lives, for God to be at work in the midst of our people. And so what I want to do is I want to hang a discussion over uh, four different things. Number one, I want to take a look at our purpose and our goals. I may lump those together. I may separate them. I want to look at what RYM refers to as its principles, Scripture, justification, sanctification, glorification. I want to look at what RYM calls their presuppositions. This is one of the hardest uh, headings to define. Even though I took a stab at it this morning, it's a little more esoteric than others, which you would expect when they like a presupposition. And then what I want to do is I want to introduce you to a handful of ministry dynamics that we believe are present in the growth of any healthy group. Okay? and give you some guidance as to how that stuff plows through. That's kind of where we're going. We're going to go through it rather quickly, uh, uh, but feel free, as usual, to interject with any questions you might have. Okay? So let's start, first of all, with the purpose. What do we say is the purpose of RYM Youth Ministry? What are we recommending to you? What's the phrase? Reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Now, why would that be one's purpose? <clears throat> well, we've been doing a lot of work on this for quite some time. And what I would like to do is to warmly commend to you uh, a, a graphic that we have been developing for some other uh, uh, uses. Uh, one has been in my local church. Another one has been for RUF uh, in a place of why we feel like this purpose helps to draw in so much of our <clears throat> of, of our reason for doing anything when it comes to ministry. Okay? Um, can you answer the question at the most basic level of why are you here? And reaching and equipping is great. There is a sense in which reaching and equipping are kind of uh, vapid enough phrases that you can kind of fill it up with whatever you want. And it might be that in your context, you need that for your session. Because who could be against that? Why are you here? I want to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve in Jesus' church. Good for you. That's wonderful. So you may need that. And you know what? We're actually okay with that. You do what you got to do, okay, to make life happen. But what I want sort of, to root this a little more deeply because I want to be able to associate it with how we understand our theological approach to why there is something rather than nothing. Okay? So I want to sort of introduce you to a little graphic here that may take root in RYM. It might not. I'm going to spend a ton of time on it just because it's novelty. It's new. 
Uh, but maybe, who knows? Maybe a parent will watch it and introduce it to the rest of the group. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does the universe exist? What is man's chief end, catechism people? What is God's chief end? To glorify himself. Okay? The reason why there is something rather than nothing is because God's glory uh, is being displayed. Okay? Um, I think it's so important to root your purpose in this, in this idea. Because of all the things that distinguish a Calvinistic worldview from other sort of rival worldviews, it is that we begin and insist upon uh, the great thought of God. That's where all of our thinking begins, is that we are derivative of him. We are the creature. He is the creator. And that distinction between the two of us is absolutely vital to root our purpose in a theocentric, God-centered view of the world. Why are we here? We're here because we're here to glorify God. I exist for his pleasure, not the other way around, which I hope you hear it in those terms, but that is a radical statement. Okay? I just don't see, really feel the need for God right now. Interesting. He doesn't care <laughs> whether you feel a need for him. I mean, that's the, the, the universe is existing for his glory. Okay, but having established that great fact, he then established a second truth, which was he created a realm, or what the theologians call a kingdom. A realm, a theater as it was, for his glory. There was going to be a place where he would display his glory. A creative <coughs> order. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he decided to put inside that kingdom, inside that gar uh, garden, image bearers. People that would uniquely uh, embrace and, and, and reflect his glory to the rest of the universe. Human beings, right? In other words, not only do you have a purpose, but you have a setting... And now you have the main characters of the story. Which, as it turns out, is precisely what happens right after that. Is God begins to tell a story. The story of the Bible. In other words, the, 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 the action of human history lays out in the form of a story. Um, and that's what you end up having with the rest of Scripture. And this is where you'll find a lot of people helping us with the major story arcs in Scripture. Y'all heard people talk about this. What are the four big story arcs, arcs of Scripture? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Good, there you go. Creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. This is the biblical storyline, right? What's interesting about the biblical storyline is it ends up becoming not only the story of the Bible... But for believers, it becomes the story of everything in their life. You realize this is the story of your youth group. I'm dealing with creatures that are created in God's image, and that's a good thing. But you know what? The fall has completely destroyed any semblance of order in that world. These are broken, hurting. They're like sheep without a shepherd. But you know what? Something that Jesus did on the cross can draw them back and bring them healing. And one day they'll experience that ultimately in glory with God. That's the story of your youth group. This is the story of your marriage. Marriage is a good thing. God created it. He wants it for all of us. But you know what? Sin is threatening every day to mess that thing up. But you know, Jesus died on the cross to somehow bring us freedom so we can not murder each other. And one day, that marriage is going to consummate itself 
in, a, in, in what the real marriage is pointing to, Jesus and his church. So Christians take this story and we adopt it as the way we see everything. So there's a way in which we can talk about our purpose uh, uh, in terms of how this story lays out. But of course, for our purposes when it comes to the reason for ministry, by far the most dramatic of those events for our purposes is the fall. Because the fall, when Adam and Eve decide that they want to pull themselves out of alignment with God's glory, they have experienced two negative reactions. The first one is they experience a broken vertical relationship. <coughs> How do we know that? What happens when God comes for his regular walk through the garden uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, 3? What happens? What are they doing when God shows up? Hiding from him. Why are they hiding? Because they're, 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 I would say they feel guilty. The shame more affects the two of them across from each other. They feel guilty. Have you ever noticed that guilt is always repellent? If there's somebody in this room with, that you're at odds with, okay? You're in a fight. Things aren't going well. You disagree with one another. They maybe said some nasty things about you. When they walk in a room, what are you, how are you going to react to that? Oh, gosh. Just, mm. hey, stand in between this, please, because I cannot deal with this right now. <laughs> guilt is always repellent. Always. And so long as there's guilt in the mix, there will never be connection. It's one of the reasons why you realize the Bible goes so far out of its way to show you the exacting nature of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If it's not exacting, if it doesn't have a ring of perfection to it, there's still a lingering sense of guilt in you. If that lingering <coughs> sense of guilt is in you, you will never sense connection with your Creator. Okay? Broken vertical relationship. But there's another one. There's also a broken horizontal relationship. Now, how do we know that that happened? What's the evidence there in Genesis chapter 3 of the broken relationship between Adam and Eve? Blame. They what? Uh, there's blame. Definitely blaming. That was after the fact. What's the first thing that happened after they, after they sinned? Covering. They cover. Why they cover? Because they suddenly realize they're naked. They realize that they're naked. Honestly, I think one of the most heartbreaking heartbreaking verses in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3 where God looks at Adam and says who told you you were naked? There's so much emotion behind that question. Who told you you were naked? Um, because he suddenly realizes you're ashamed. In other words, if guilt is the great thing that creates alienation between me and God, shame, which is basically the, the, the Bible's uh, picture of nakedness is a picture of shame. You ever wondered how weird it was that the Bible goes so far out of its way to stress that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified naked? Is that a detail that really needed to make it into the narrative of your, of your fallen hero's story? Unless there was a point to it. That what he was doing on the cross was bearing my shame. He was being executed because of my shame. Okay? Now here's where we get to the purpose of all this. This has all been very fun and theological, right? What does this mean, Les? God's answer to a broken vertical relationship with Him is the cross of Jesus. Right? 
God's answer to broken horizontal relationships is the church. The reason why we are doing ministry is because we want to sort of preach the cross and build the church. Or we want to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Which means what? Equip them to be a part of the body. So your involvement in that local church is not extraneous to real ministry. It's the very center of what God is doing. Because think about it this way. The cross speaks to the doctrine of union with Christ. It's the effectual uh, event that creates union between Jesus and his people. I'm now in him, Paul says, right? But, you know, this affects union with Christ. This affects union with Christ's people. And the funny thing is, it turns out that those are kind of the same thing. Jesus is like, you're not going to be in union with me unless you're in union with my people. There is a unity to this purpose. It's really the same thing, all wrapped up in union with Christ. You need to realize that, that God is not selfish. He says, look, if you want to be in union with me, go be in union with my people. Um, if you come to the altar and you remember that you've got something against your brother, 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 your brother, um, leave your gift and go and be made right with them. Why? Because what you and I are doing here, you being in the worship in the temple, is about that relationship. It's the same reason why you get to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. And he's like, look, don't come and take the supper in an unworthy manner. And tragically, and I would even say this is part of our own denomination, we tend to sort of gear that over to being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've got a lot of sin in your life, I will stay away from the supper. <laughs> that is not what the supper is about. Taking the supper in an unworthy manner, if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 11, is doing so in the midst of disunity. When you remember that you've got something against your brother. Why? Because you cannot be in union with the body of Christ without being in union with the body of Christ. And if I've been walking around talking about how much I hate you and can't stand what you've done and how your family cheated my family and you're a piece of trash, but I guess I've got to sit on the same pew with you because you won't leave, Jesus is like, go make that right. And then come take the supper. Because if you don't, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Amen. Tragically, you got a lot of people just out there being like, you know, I just don't feel worthy this time, so I did. let the plate pass. And you'd be like, dude, it is four sinners. <laughs> right. That's not what this is about. It's about division in the body. And in the end, it ends up being the, the, the uniting of our purpose. Union with Christ. Okay? So where do we get our purpose in reaching and equipping? We got reaching and equipping from that little theological statement. That's what God is doing in the world. He's working in the cross and he's working in the church. Preaching the cross, building the church. Reaching students for Christ, equipping to serve. Did you make those correspondences? Did you see the thought process? That's all I'm asking. It's a fun little, it's got shapes to it, <laughs> thing, you know, circle, a little bowl. That's the purpose. Since y'all love that so much, we'll move on to the to the principles. Um, where's the eraser? Oh, there we go. No, okay. Remember, part of the challenge of some of this data points that you're getting is knowing what we mean by purpose and principles. Okay. And by principles, we're really talking about uh, 
we, we have talked a lot about this. The principles are the thing. And I'm coming over here right now, all right? Because these are our principles, the four principles as they exist in our way and stuff. What we are doing for you is we are attempting to help you in the midst of ministry make the decision about what is most important to get across to people. Now, you've got to be very careful how you phrase that because that sounds like we're saying we want you to um, talk to people about the most important stuff in the Bible. That is not what we said. What we said was things that we are giving to you as a conceptual recommendation of an important way to think about what people ought to know before they leave your youth group. Now, why, why would you look at me like, why are you choosing less? Why would you have to pick this? Uh, just do the Bible. Like, tell them it's the whole Bible. Hmm. Okay, first of all, you're dealing with pre-developed humans. Okay, that's one reason right there, that I've got to make some decisions. And you know what's funny? You already make those decisions. And some of those decisions about what you will and will not teach on from the totality of God's Word are not very wise. You didn't choose well. You went to the passages that you just kind of gravitate on. And sometimes the stuff that you gravitated on were the stuff that makes you look cool, uh, really gives them a big swift kick in the pants. You ever, you ever prepared a lesson like that? I don't show these people. You know? You preach this at them. You tell them I'm going to hell. You can't preach mad. Best advice I ever got from a minister one time. He said, don't ever preach mad. If you're mad at your, if, if you're mad at your demographic, call a substitute. Did you preach for me tonight? I'm mad about the context. We, in other words, you're making the decision to sift through the totality of biblical witness in some way, but most of the time it's been uncritical. You just do it's reactionary. Oh, I don't know, I gotta think of something to talk about. Ephesians sounds awesome. <laughs> RYM is saying, you know what? Why don't we try this? Let's see if we can't get these things down. Are there others? Of course there are others. But we think these are getting into some really important things. That before that that the high school student goes off to college, this will really help them. Okay, so what are they saying? Let's take a look at it real quick. <coughs> Not on purpose anymore, we're on principles. Wow. <laughs> principles. Number one, scripture is a principle. Okay, what, what, are, what is scripture talking to us about? Scripture is dealing with the question of truth. Um, in the 80s, is anybody in their 45 to 55 range in the room? Oh, a couple. Good, good, good. So back in the day, when I was in college in the late 80s, I think the question was, is there truth? Is there truth or is there not truth? There was, there was this, this you know, earth-shattering book people still refer to by Alan Bloom called The Closing of the American Mind, which was sort of the first sociological expose on the fact that if you ask your average young person today... Uh, uh, whether there was absolute truth, they would say, well, truth is relative. It is an absolute cultural assumption that you can't say that one thing is like true over another thing. Now, we've moved to some degree to that, that whole, through that whole experience. Um, now, I would argue that the question is not so much, is there truth? It's a question of where is the truth? There's a sense in which now, and again, I'm not playing into the culture's hands as much as you might think that I am, but now it's always all about, um, hey man, you've got to do your truth. 
You know, you do you. Yeah, whatever's true for you, you got to live in consistency with that. Y'all, I'm about to do some serious name dropping right here. Because about two weeks ago, me and a handful of friends got to hang out for the day with Tim Keller. Come on, that's pretty awesome. No, 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 no. Worship in a door. Um, so there's a guy, we started this little pastor's group, and one of them names happens to be, one of the guys in the group is, is named Michael Keller. Uh, happens to be one of the offspring of Tim Keller. And he was like, hey, if you want to come to Europe, we can hang with my dad for a day. I'm like, what are we doing? So we did it. And um, the, the stuff that he talked about is going to leak out over the next few months. And one of the things I thought was really fascinating that he was introducing us to was the, um, the change in the way in which people dealt with, um, with truth. I'm not sure he used the word truth. But what you have here is you have the individual. Okay. And in, the t- in days past, the individual had emotions inside of his self. There were desires, feelings that were on the inside. And on the outside of himself was a truth, a rule, an ideal, if you will. And the goal in life was to bring my life and my emotions into... Um, alignment with that truth that is outside of me. You follow? Okay. He said, now it's going to be completely reversed. He said, what we have now is a realm where the individual is the seat of the truth. It's in me. And the goal in life is to basically force the world around me, to demand that the world around me bend their emotions to my truth. I mean, you can't tell me you can't tell me what I've got to do. You can't order me around. Um, you, you can't you cannot lock me in your primitive gender constructs. Okay, you're not going to attach male or female to me. I don't care what my genitalia is. Um, you know, you're not going to tell me that my love for this person who is my same sex is not legit. You cannot do that. It is absolute law. And what's interesting now is, is it used to be you know, the postmodern era, uh, which was mm, 80s, 90s, maybe early 2000s, pre, pre-9-11, was tolerant of you at least. Hey, if that's cool for you. If you're not a Christianity thing, knock yourself out, whatever. But it says now we more and more see with the sort of polarization of, of, of social and political discourse in our world. It's not just, it's not just in America. Political discourse is polarized to the point where now we are post-Christian. Actually, Keller used the phrase uh, post-Christendom, right? Which is where Christians basically were the ones who set the agenda for society. Everybody kind of lived by what we thought were the rules. And he had people, he said, the problem is we've not figured out what it means to live in a post-Christendom world. And most people are longing to go back to Christendom. They, they, they long for the good old days, you know, well, when I was a child. You know, people didn't talk to their parents that way. And, and nobody was gay when I was you know, younger. You know. okay, right. um, <laughs> but what's happened is it's no longer, it's, there's no longer a request to tolerate my truth. It is now a demand that you bend your emotions to my truth. A demand. There's no, there's no, there's no like a freedom anymore. It's incredibly, it's incredibly imperialistic. For all the open-mindedness of the, of the sort of uh, progressive thought uh, when it comes to... It's not progressive. Republicans and Democrats do the same thing. 
They're looking and saying, you will not deny me who I am. I'm the one who decides who I am. I'm the one who, who uh, alerts you to that. So along comes your campus ministry, or your, your youth ministry. And you walk in and you say, you know what, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I want to offer you young people um, a conceptual recommendation, just like we're doing to you. I actually want to tell you that I think I know where the truth is. The truth actually is in uh, God's word as he reveals his son through it. That the Bible is this unified story that's leading to Jesus, right? Um, and I want to show you what it is. It's a strange sort of thing because it's not a rule book. It's not like a, it's not a, 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 a collection of moral platitudes, though we have certainly tried to make it that. It's actually a story. And it's a story that if you get engage in and you listen to it and you trace where it's going and you follow its action, it'll capture your imagination. And one day you'll actually realize, I believe this stuff. It's crazy. Come take a look. I'll tell you where it is. That truth is not in you. And you might be the first person to get them to doubt what's going on with them. So one of my favorite movies, did I use the Juno illustration? No, that was Sunday night. Sunday night. Okay. Did you all watch Juno? Uh, uh, um, what's her name? <laughs> was that Ellen, awkward? Ellen, <laughs> um, Ellen Page. Ellen Page. Ellen Page is Juno, this little smart talking. She's, it's a cute, cute movie. I love that movie. Um, but she has sex with her best friend and gets pregnant for the, for the story. And um, um, at one point she has to go tell her parents, right, who are hilarious and weird and funny. Um, and she sits there and she says to them, you know, I'm pregnant. And they kind of freak out a little bit. Um, and at one point the dad, you know, really needing to make that last little statement to make sure he knows how disappointed he is, says to Juno, he's like, you know, Juno, I just kind of thought that you were the kind of girl who knew when to say when. And it's really weird because she's so carefree and so um, flippant through almost all of the movie that she gets kind of serious at a moment. She goes, you know, Dad, I don't really know the kind of girl I am. And I thought it's the most tender moment in that movie where she's kind of admitting, that's actually a really good question. I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm telling you, more people feel that way than, than I think they all feel that way. No one's given them permission, though, to say that it's okay. Because everything that we've constructed around them in terms of a, of a worldview is trying to say to them, you do you. And they're all being like, I, I, I don't know what you is. I don't know who me is. What does that mean? Because they know that they're inherently mimickers, that they're, they're imitators, they are worshipers. And they're looking, they're searching. And so what do they land on? They land on the most immersive experience that they have, which is social media. That is the spiritual formative force in this generation. Full stop. And if you're saying to yourself, you are exactly right, which is why there will never be another phone in our church ever again. <laughs> you're not listening. It's an immersive experience. To do that is to set yourself so far away from what they are doing that you're unintelligible. What we've got to do is figure out a way to help them. Yes, of course they need to be on their phones less. Of course they do. But to help them find healthy ways to engage in that. To be conversant with that. All right, I get you. I'll listen to your music. I, I'll, I'll watch your movies to the degree that my conscience will allow me to. I'm, I'll engage. Let's ask some questions about that. Why? Because we think the truth is somewhere different. Yeah, this is a relevant question. You people actually have some vague appreciation for the Bible. And look, don't lie. Sunday night we had this conversation with the youth where we did the friend thing um, uh, for the church. And it was amazing. We've had a guy come in. Uh, who may or may not be a Christian, super cool, cool kid. I, I, 
I always get jealous of these guys being like, man, I wish I was you when I was in high school. Um, he was so cool. And that, he kind of lingered around towards the end. He was like, I got this question. He's like, you know, how do we know that like what we've got in the Bible is like the actual things? Like, don't we just have copies of copies? And then they're like a weird. He was asking about textual transmission in the 10th grade, right? And intuitively he knew this is an old book. Why should this be important to me? You got, you got to answer those questions, y'all. To some degree, to give them a sense of being like, I'm not going to be able to give you like the history of textual transmission, but let me at least tell you that we didn't just make it up, right? A lot of times it just takes a smart person like you being like, hey, I'm not going to blind you with science here, but like we spent some time thinking about this. You're not the first person to say like, well, how do we know that a medieval monk didn't just write it all down and uh, just told us, made up these stories? Because we know that a medieval monk didn't write it. We've got these papyri from like, the, the early century. Give them a little bit, enough to be able to be like, oh, okay, so y'all have thought about this. All right, what's the next thing we can talk about? <laughs> so scripture. And I think the final thing about scripture is, it is absolutely not natural for, uh, uh, for people to um, uh, find Christ in the text of the scripture. Period. Um, the easiest, laziest form of exposition is to go to the moralistic tale. You know, dare to be a Daniel. Uh, you tell me, Daniel was so brave. Don't you wish y'all were brave? Let's all pray that we were more brave. Let's pray. That, that, that's, that's your basic outline of a Bible lesson for students, right? Look how brave he was. Instead of actually teaching them to watch how these things lead to Christ. Um, you know, we did a series through the book of Leviticus about 10 years ago in, in, in RUF. And the reason why I decided to do it was wonderful to look at my leadership team and I told them we were going to do Leviticus. They were like, uh, don't do that. Um, and I said, look, I said, I believe that this book, its existence in the Bible is the reason why people leave the faith. Because they're like, if that's in there, I can't trust any of it. Okay? So giving people at least enough tools to be like, hey, you don't have to understand everything, but can I just give you the general idea here? Because the second that you start talking about homosexuality, they can look at me like, oh, oh, you mean the same thing where you're not supposed to like have a polycotton blend? You know, you know that's in that same chapter, don't you? Because they heard some gotcha thing they heard on the radio one time. They'd be like, no, I promise you, you're not the first person to say that to us. Oh, there it is. <laughs> but interacting with Scripture and getting this sort of platform, that is a big deal. Where is the truth? Okay? Questions about Scripture application for students. The reason why I introduced it this way is because I want your imagination to be popping. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the issues that we need to get across to students? What do they need to understand and be committed to when it comes to Scripture? If you're asking that question, you're sort of owning RYM's philosophy of ministry. Can I go to the second one? Justification. Sanctification. Nobody remembers Cajun Man anymore. Thank you. Cultural reference. Um, justification. How can I be right with God? Right? Um, the question of justification, and we, we've, we've chosen different words for this. Um, I like to... Um, I like to land on one of two things. The first one's a little more controversial, the second one not so much. Um, the, the, the idea of justification addresses uh, two fundamental issues. The first one is the question of guilt. Um, you know, it's so passe to even use the word guilt because we know that false guilt is such a problem for young people. It can trigger people and um, create all manner of dysfunction that's not dealt with right. But you know, like, we need to be bringing guilty back again. 
Well, why does God say that's wrong? And you'd be like, well, because he can. I'm not trying to be mean, but there's certain truths that are just kind of like that. You know, when, um, the illustration I used to use was when, when my son, my youngest, who's now 14, uh, when he was like one or two years old, he was an adventurous little dude, right? And he would walk into, periodically, the kitchen. And if he could reach high enough, he could grab, oh, I don't know, a knife off the kitchen. And let's say you come walking in, and he's in there with his knife, you know? He's swashbuckling, you know, fighting imaginary you know, pirates in the, in the thing. Well, now look, when I reach into his world, and I'm like, give me that knife, and I rip it out of his hands, set it away, can I give him a slap on the hand, don't ever go back to that knife, what happens to him? He begins to look at his kind of like, you know, you, you arbitrary and capricious, you know, uh, uh, authority figure. Like, why would you ever rob me of the joy that I was getting from this thing? So at that moment, I'm going to sit down to him and be like, okay, okay, look. There are these things inside of you called, called, called it's called blood, and you got these, you got these veins, and there's capillaries that come here. If you cut yourself, it'll bleed, and then you could die. Blah, blah. He's three. He doesn't have any conception of that. There's a sense in which sometimes all that I need to know is because I'm the daddy. That's why. Now, hopefully, as they grow, they're kind of figuring that stuff out, and hopefully, the same for us. But there really is a sense in which having lost a sense of guilt. We may be more poverty-stricken than we know. Because it may be like, I don't, why, why would he ever deny me the joy that I have when I have sex with another man? That's who I am on the inside. That's my identity. How, how, why would he do that? I don't know. Because he says it eventually is going to make you sad. And, and you, you, don't, you don't have to believe that, but I think that's where we are. That, that kind of false sexual expression is going to be bad for you. I don't know how, but that's what he says. And he's the daddy. We're guilty before him. How can I have a relationship with this God? What do I do with my guilt? Because pain on the inside is going to come out. And it is coming out. It's coming out in the erratic change of friends. I watched this go down Sunday night. You know, people who are shifting from friend group to friend group in a semester. Boom, boom, boom. She doesn't talk to me anymore. She does not talk to me anymore. I was like, wow, so tragic. Why? She gave me the dirtiest look. I was like, I'm done with you. I was like, oh, that may be why she don't talk anymore. <laughs> I'm no Sigmund Freud. Uh, they're just doing destruction to themselves. The other sense is a, is a, bit, more, uh, is a bit more broad, but it's easy. it goes down a little easier. And that is like, what is your identity? How do you define you? What's, what's the most fundamental sense of you being a person? And justification looks at us and says, I'm a, redeemed, I'm a redeemed man. I'm a man in Christ. That's my ultimate identity of who I am. I build that saying on that. Because justification comes in and says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, he didn't ask us to clean ourselves up before he accepted us. He understood that the nature of our slavery to sin was such that there wasn't going to be any sort of like, well, look, if you get yourself right over here, 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 and here, then we'll get you back in the, in the fold. It's not what he did. He came in purely by grace, 100% by grace, extend themselves in the life of a student. Um, look, guys, I need you. We need you. The church needs you to sit down with students, high school students, junior high students, and start to define their behaviors and put those connections together. Can I tell you why it's such a hard semester for you? Would you allow me with enough friendship that I sat there and bought you enough ice cream, you know, uh, to give to speak into your life. 
Because I think I might know why this has been such a terrible time for you. I think you're so ticked off. And it may be because you've got an unresolved something on the inside. You don't know what to do with the guilt that you feel. I had a kid, I had a kid in my youth group. Um, this is way back. This is college youth group. Um, Neil was oh, the sweetest kid in the world. Just sweet, smile on top. Hey, look, it's always like this. And in the space of about a year, his brother had committed suicide at the beginning of the year. And then six months later, his sister made an attempt and failed at it. Uh, his parents were divorced, and so it was kind of his mom against the world. They were living in an apartment really kind of close by my house. And, you know, I was giving them rides home. This is back in the day when you could give kids rides home, you know, and not get arrested for it. Um, and I was, giving, I was giving them a ride home, and, you know, over and over again, I was like, you know, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know. I've just been kind of sad, but I'm good. I'm good. You want to be like, no, no, you're not. You're not fine. So um, I, we were talking about this in, in a counseling class because – Therapists will tell you that sometimes if you give somebody like a, a third object, a third thing, that they'll do this sort of transference deal where the anxiety that they're feeling on the inside, they can pour into the thing while they're talking to you. That's why some people fiddle with like markers while they're talking. All my anxiety is going into this right now. Um, well, I went and bought them some ice cream. We stopped by Baskin Robbins, right, on the way home. And I was like, dude, get you something. Make it just Sunday. Church is going to pay for it. Oh, okay. You get three scoops of chocolate on it. You're and the weirdest thing, as soon as he started digging into that thing on the way home, um, he's like, yeah, then my brother died. I didn't know what to do. I still don't know what to do. My sister, she feels so sad. He's just pounding that ice cream the whole way. He needed that transference. But it wasn't until we got him to a point where he was admitting that there was a problem. Justification is about bringing people to that point where you can announce the grace of God. Okay? Number three. I'm going to do a little time here. I'm good. I'm good. Sanctification all. Sanctification. Sanctification. What is this one answering the question of? Sanctification is dealing in the lives of students with the question of change. <coughs> How do I change? Because look, this is not hard to introduce the relevance of to the life of a high school student. Nobody likes who they are in high school. You know? Your body just did this crazy weird thing. Mm. My son is a late bloomer. Uh, or at least he's late in the game right now. There are about six or seven guys in the youth group in the junior high right now, and he and his buddy are the last two holdouts, you know? It's like, puberty, come on. Um, and you know, I'm telling you, it's amazing how self-critical he is, for little eighth-grade dude. He don't like his teeth. And then, never mind that I paid $5,000 for squirting those teeth. Um, you talk to me about those teeth. Um, so hilarious. I'm a really good parent. <laughs> I not imagine the compassion I have my children. Um, he's so self-conscious. And the good thing is, is he's verbalizing. It. And that's our greatest gift, is that our children still verbalize their inner worlds for us at this stage. Um, he wants to change. He wants to change things about himself. Walk into that world and start to be like, huh, so you don't like where you are. What are you going to do about that? How does that strike you? How does that happen? Because it may just be that the desire of not liking where you are is never going to go away. Do you honestly think this goes away in college once you've gotten out from the, under the, the confines of your terrible parents? Do you really think that once you get out of college and you're kind of doing the work-a-day world, maybe you find yourself a wife, maybe you have kids, do you honestly think that you're going to be satisfied with yourself? Have you talked to an adult about that? Nobody gets satisfied with themselves. I look fantastic. Nobody says that. Supermodels don't say that. It doesn't exist. Why? Because there's a because there's a memory trace inside of us that knows that we're supposed to be new. 
What does Revelation 21 say? What does God say? Behold, I am making all things new. He is the eternally new God. He's taking what was in the garden, the original garden that got destroyed by us, and he's trying to bring it all back together again and eventually succeed in the book of Revelation. He's making all things new. He's changing. So what's interesting thing about this is, and this is also very foreign to your average high school student, is acceptance with God is this has got to be the direction of the arrow. If it goes this way, you're in trouble. Here's the two problems that people have. High school students will oftentimes have justification without sanctification. This is this attitude. Well, I mean, I know what I did is wrong, but like, God's going to forgive me. Okay? That's justification without sanctification. We'd be like, okay, I think we might have missed something here because this actually is one of the, is, is tied up in union with Christ. Like, and when you're united with Jesus' body, like, you don't, you don't relish sin against him. Like, that, that's contradiction in terms. But far more the people that grow up in churches that are in your youth, youth groups, they flip-flop these things. And they're like, as soon as I get myself together, then God will accept me. And see, that's called the opposite of Christianity. All right? That's not it. You know, either, which is it? Do, do, do I love God, and on the basis of that love, he'll save me and love me back? Or does he announce his love to a screwed up sinner, and on the basis of that, I try to live a holy life? That, that's not like you know, doctrinal nuance. <laughs> that's Christianity and, and non-Christian stuff. It's utterly fundamental. Um, again, I'm, I'm quoting Mark Lowry, one of the uh, founders of RUF, uh, and sort of the founders of RYM's uh, philosophy of ministry, uh, who said 95% of the issues that you deal with in students' lives will trace itself back to a misunderstanding between justification and sanctification. 95%. Does that feel overstated to you? I remember when I was sitting through training the first time he said that, I was kind of like, wow. Okay. I mean, there's plenty of other problems out there, right? That's a, I get that, you know, hyperbole. And give me about five years into ministry, and I was like, oh yeah, that's everybody's deal. It all comes back to that. All right? One last thing, we'll have some time for questions before we take a break. Number four. Glorification. What does glorification answer the question of? Questions of destiny. And where am I going? Right? Um, look, human nature is inherently forward-looking. Uh, so is high school. I mean, listen to them. How much do they want to be grown-ups? How much do they want to be homecoming queen? How much do they want to get a starting position on the team? I mean, everything is about the future. It's about something that's coming. And once all of a sudden trauma enters into that whole uh, mix, that's where despair comes in. And it's because we've actually taught people to buy into their entire world being here. Is this all there is? Is this the whole deal? What's fascinating is if you go back and read the Puritans, they were all up in these discussions of heaven. You know? Uh, and the reason is because child mortality rates were what they were. You know, you go through the, the absolute life tsunami of losing a child in infancy. You do that a few times, and like, you don't ask some ultimate questions about whether or not this world is really your home. Some of you have been through miscarriages and seen what that's like. I don't think I'm wrong on that one. 
But, but again, what we've done now in our world is we've made the idea of death itself so antiseptic. I lost my dad about five and a half years ago, six years ago this summer. And, um, you know, one of the most, there's a lot unnerving about that experience, not the least of which is to, you know, sit in a room and, you know, have him there. And then all of a sudden you kind of go home and then you get a phone call that he passed away. And you're like, oh, okay, what do I do? Oh, that's okay. We're, we're arranging services for you. You're like, oh, okay, who's arranging services? Well, you know, you agreed on this and he had this plan set up. We'll see you Thursday at the Memphis Funeral Home. Okay, all right, all right. So you kind of go there, and you walk in, and there's this casket, and he's laid out there, looking nothing like himself. I don't know who actually did, who, who did the work on my head. He didn't look anything like himself. It was really weird. Um, but for some people, they're like, oh, he looks so beautiful. You know, it's so nice. We, we've made death so antiseptic. You know, 100 years ago, when somebody passed away, they put him on the kitchen table until the mortician could make it by, right? And you just kind of hoped that, you know, he got by before things got gross. Uh, there was a difference in having to deal with it. All those things are out on the periphery. Uh, Don Carson says that for this generation, he said, you know, there are no more taboos. You know what a taboo is? Stuff you just don't talk about. And he says, you know, sexually speaking, I can talk about anything when it comes to sex and nobody even blushes. <coughs> so the second that I bring up death, or say, like, let me tell you about the time when, uh, when, when, when my, my dad passed away. You hear a pin drop in the room because nobody knows what to do with it. The great awkwardness of death. So we've moved it to the periphery of our lives. Why? Because it speaks against my ability to have hope and a destiny. One small little thing before questions, and this may open up more than I want to open up. I do think that we need to work at helping people know what we mean by heaven. Uh, there's a lot of confusion that heaven is like up in the sky where God lives. And we live with that for quite some time until Yuri... Yuri Gregorian, who's, who's the Russian cosmonaut yeah. Yeah. who flew up into space, did, was the first sort of uh, cosmonaut. He comes back, remember the first thing he says to the news cameras? Yeah, I went up into heaven and God wasn't there. So there you go. You know, like, you know, mic drop, right? Uh, 1960s version of a mic drop. You um, were idiots. The problem is we've not helped people know what the Bible means by heaven. And it, it requires us to be a little funky, but this is on you to help us illustrate this. Um, heaven is God's space among us. And it used to be that that world was visible, but it became invisible. Probably not because he's hiding, absolutely not because he's hiding, but because we're hiding. Our sin has created blinders to where we can't see the heavenly realms. Okay, But God's space is among us. <coughs> There's, no, there's nothing to sort of put heaven like up in the sky. The, 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 the Jewish mind thought of it as up in the sky uh, because it was the best thing that they knew to be separate from them. All right? But again, now that we've been up there, we know that that's not was not a literal uh, uh, meaning of that particular uh, image. But I find a lot of brows get furrowed in college campus ministry when youth group kids come to campus ministry and you say things like that, they're kind of like, uh... I just thought it was, uh, I don't know, past Saturn something. Uh, never thought about it. What it does is it sort of puts God in some, somewhere else, you know? Somewhere else not around me. I'll be like, actually, what if it was quite near? You know? You can really weird some people out with that, so I don't know. All right, questions, comments on our, these are our questions. We're basically saying, can you introduce people to questions of truth, questions of guilt, questions of change, and questions of destiny? Where are we going? What's going to happen?
Yes. You may not want to get into this, but you seemed dubious about glorification. Is the reason why or what you would replace it with? I would not replace it. I would not include Just it. Good. The, the triumvirate. So, um, yes, yes, yes. A, I'm down with triads. Right. That's the first thing. I'm Trinitarian like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a high roll. Um, and, and, and if you look at the way in which glorification began to be talked about in RUF circles, uh, my problem was this began to look arbitrary by starting to add ordo salutis items because you have every right to say, why not adoption? Why not regeneration? Why not anything in the ordo? And I was like, it's arbitrary if you don't do that. And actually, the inclusion of justification and sanctification originally from Mark was not to be like, these are our two favorite parts of the order salutis. Let's use those. That was not the reason. He got it straight out of um, Loveless in the Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, where Loveless said when, when revivals happen, historically speaking, they tend to get justification and sanctification right. They get joyous about the fact that God loves screw-up sinners like us. And so what happened was, is, and this is, this is why it's a big joke, John Stone was the one who brought this in because he was convinced that we were too materialistic as a society. And he's right. But it's still arbitrary. And we can't just start adding things on because then you've got the same problem you had before about the fact that you only have four years with these people. Tops. And they have little small brains. So we've got to make some choices. <laughs> Truly. Like they have underdeveloped brains. Y'all are watching the brain scan studies, right? These things are fascinating. Uh, what they're saying about the capacity that your people have for moral spatial reasoning. Um, but I digress. But my whole thing is, if this list keeps getting longer and longer because of arbitrary things that are important, then, then we lose it. So I, I keep saying glorification is not a principle. But RYM chose it, and I got no problem with that. It's still a good thing. Sure. But someone's going to raise it and be like, well, I just think adoption should be thinking. I'm like, well, we can always keep adding, but now you've lost the, you've lost the problem. To me, I want to say, yes, that's an issue, but the homelessness of man is also an issue. Which is, adoption would answer that question. Um, we haven't defined faith, which is what faith and repentance is. Um, where is, where is uh, um, predestination in the conversation? It just gets arbitrary after a while. And the point of the principles is to give you a sort of parameter to say, okay, look, there's a thousand conversations you could have. If you want to talk about mode of baptism, knock yourself out, maybe, please don't. Um, but, but what we'd rather you do is make sure that no matter what you do, you cover this. So if that keeps getting added to, you've lost the point. Principles are not the most important thing in the Bible. They are conceptual recommendations of important things that you would do well to give people before they left your youth group. You see the difference between that? I, that interests no one except for me and John Stone. So. <coughs> Good question, Dan. Any other thoughts? It's the afternoon. Go, give you, give you. It's probably a bigger question than we have time for, but um, hearing this from RUF experience, one-on-ones, I think in these categories all the time, especially if I'm sitting with a student, okay, I'm thinking, okay, is this a scripture issue, is it justification, is it justification? I'm thinking now more in terms of uh, curriculum or youth group, like, how do you take the principles and say, how do we want to make sure this is always in front of students while we're thinking through some of the school curriculum, youth group, um, etc.? Do that. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, I'll give you a way in which I thought about this with my church. Okay? So we just unveiled our philosophy of ministry since the last seven months with the elders hashing this out of each session meeting that we had. I changed the principles, okay, to our church because we already had some language inside our church that was helpful. We had a phrase in our church. Um, 
Christ Prez seeks to be a home for those who have found their hope in the gospel and a place where that hope is offered to all. That was our tagline, right? Every elder said it before every church service. You know, we're so glad you're here. Christ Prez seeks to be a place for a home, people have their hope in the gospel. And I remember thinking to myself when that came out about two years ago, I was like, oh, home and hope. I kind of like that. That works for me for a reason. Because when I heard hope and home, I heard cross and church. Our hope is the gospel, the church. I said, but there's one thing missing. What's the outward nature of that? How is this getting out? Hope and home tend to be a little too, too um, <coughs> internal, right? How does that get out into the community? So I added one. So basically we have home, hope, and healing. Thank goodness it was a good H word. <laughs> and so the principles that we established on Sunday, this was two days ago, are gospel, um, no, no, get that wrong. Sorry, home is church, gospel, and kingdom. Okay? These are our principles at Christ Perez now. Now, what do I mean by principles? Um, Haybig used to have this great question that he would ask Brian Haybig, pastor of downtown Perez at Greenville, South Carolina, a very good friend of mine. Uh, we cover up the, the enduring community together. He's loved to ask candidates questions um, when they would come into uh, for examination to be ordained. And his favorite question was to say, hey, after five years of being at your church, what do you want people to say that you harped on while you were there? What, was your, what, what would you want your hobby horse to have been? That's the best question you could ever ask anybody. It's my favorite question to ask. I ask it every single Presbyterian. Hey, what, what, what you going what you going hobby horse on? Right? You'd be amazed at the answers. We literally had someone look and be like, we're going to build our church on homeschooling and Ezo. Oh, <laughs> Ezo. Anybody remember Growing Kids God's Way? Oh. Dead serious he said that. I'm like, wow, I wonder why that whole thing failed. He was there for two years. What are you the principles answer the question, what are you going to harp on? When, when, when RUF campus ministers get your students from your youth group and they say, like, what, what, was your, what, was your, uh, what was your youth director kind of preoccupied with? What do they always talk about? I'm getting to your curriculum question. So, I'm a brand new pastor of a church. What am I going to preach on? Okay? So what did I decide to do? Luke 1 and Luke 2 in my first year. We start with the second half of Luke Sunday. Okay, on the hypocrisy stuff. Usually I do hope home healing. So first of all, this one is Luke 1 and Luke 2. So I want to do a gospel. This fall, we're going to do Exodus and Ephesians. Tell me why. Why would I do Exodus? The people of God. The formation of the people of God. I'm sitting down with Richard Pratt for dinner for, for uh, in December. And I was like, I gotta preach I got the Old Testament on the people of God. What would you do? He goes, Exodus. Like I was an idiot, which is what Richard always does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Ephesians, the New Testament of the, uh, the people of God. <coughs> Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Kingdom living. What does it look like to live in the kingdom? What does it look like for the Ten Commandments? So that's how I planned out my preaching curriculum. And I've got little, I've got uh, summer studies to do here. I'm going to do Doctrine of God here, and I don't know what I'm going to do after that next day. So that's kind of how I start to think about it. Yeah. So that at least for the next three years, 
they will have gotten a regular taste of that. Now, after that thing, I have no idea. I can't think more than three years in the future. That's a great question. Any other thoughts? Okay. So, thank you all for all of your attention today. This has been, uh, obviously, a joy to be able to go through. Uh, I want to do a quick run-through of our uh, presuppositions. Remember where I've located our presuppositions for you in the big grand scheme of things. Because presuppositions, of all the things that are the easiest to misunderstand in our life sort of scheme uh, of um, schema, if you will, of ministry stuff, presuppositions are one of the hardest to understand. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll confide in you that I feel like some of the graphics that RYM provides for you in your manuals can, can kind of make this problem slightly worse. Um, some of those graphics I would critique a little bit, but they're great for keeping things in one spot. All right, but That's a conversation for the, the staff training committee. Um, let me see if I can wrap my mind around this. Um, wrap your mind around this. Um, there's a guy named Patrick Lencioni who wrote a book called The Advantage. Mm -hmm. There are copies of it on the table. I would warmly commend to you that book. Um, Lencioni is himself a Christian. He actually writes some other smaller books about how to do organizational health among uh, not-for-profits. And they, 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 they dovetail very nicely uh, into churches and uh, other civic organizations. Um, Lencioni's basic premise is um, organizational health the health of your ministry trumps everything. And basically, that, that uh, health as a ministry is going to be defined by two great factors. <coughs> We're doing presuppositions right now, by the way. For all of you tape people out there. Two things. The first one that you have to achieve is what Luciani calls clarity. The second one is what he calls alignment. Clarity is basically getting to a point where you know what your organization is about. You've gone through the work of saying, here's what we are. Here is our wildly uh, unrealistic aspirational goal. And it ought to be something like change the world. Okay, um, uh, Convert Hendersonville. All right? Something like that. Uh, it ought to be wildly aspirational. But everybody's got to own it. And what happens is, is once you get clear on what the mission of your church is, you then have to actually work that mission through every aspect of your ministry. That's alignment. That means your leaders have got to all be on the same page about what they're doing. It means that the programs that you're starting have been filtered through this to show how you connect the dots from this program to this mission. How does it fit within our mission? And again, some of this is very easy to do because all you're doing is naming and labeling the programs that you're already engaged in. Some of it's very difficult because once you get clear on stuff, you realize you've got to let some other stuff go. Cutting stuff off is infinitely harder than starting stuff. Because everybody's got a good idea about what they ought to start. But clarity and alignment end up being the two great goals to achieve organizational health. And I would say it's absolutely true for churches. <clears throat> but let's hear what he throws in this little side comment about the fact that he, uh, something that he calls behaviors. He said, in order to really have organizational health, <coughs> you also have to identify the way we do things. 
Okay? It's behaviors that are sort of um, descriptive ideas that define your sort of mojo, uh, your flavor, since I'm so down with the lingo of the young people. Um, um, your, your mode. How about that? M-O-D-E. The mode of your ministry. In other words, you can come and have some sense of clarity about your uh, purpose and your goals and your principles, but you can betray those things by just having kind of a mojo that doesn't coordinate with them. Okay, you follow that? And so presuppositions are meant to be the behaviors. They're the mode of your ministry. They define your posture. Okay? All right, so let's take a look and see what some of these things are. Number one, we've already sort of did a little plan <coughs> is we say a reformed uh, uh, view of Scripture. And again, I tried to commend you. Remember, it's a mode. We're not saying we talk about the Bible, because that is over here. Okay? We're saying that when we talk about the Bible, we're going to take a side. Remember our discussion from this morning? That's what I was anticipating. It's saying that I'm going to come with a posture of saying, look, I'm not going to try to offer you mere Christianity. Because I'm not sure it actually exists. We need to have a conversation about these things. That yes, not everything am I going to hold with the same passion that I do other things. But I'm going to tell you the things that I do hold with a passion. And God's absolute sovereignty over every life is one of them. And again, it's okay to disagree with that. I'm not asking you to kind of buy into every single thing I'm going to tell you. I'm not sure I buy into everything that I tell you. But I want you to know that I'm going to take a side for the sake of having a discussion. And again, we're finding, RUF has found for the last 40 years, that students are very much responding to someone who will take the courage to say, no, I'm going to have this conversation with you. Okay, they're tired of the wishy-washiness. Hence the drift over into the loudest voice. Who are the loudest voices? There's white, there's white supremacy. Uh, there's uh, there's um, right-wing you know, radicalism. Uh, there's, you know... Uh, left-wing, Bernie Sanderites, socialism. There's plenty of loud voices that are calling everybody to come get on the train. Of we're really going to do it right this time. <laughs> so we come and say, actually, I'm going to be honest with my people. Like, this is what it needs to be reformed. I'm going to be okay with that. Number two, we say God is at work. This presupposition is what I would call a providential assumption. That you go to your high schools, you do your youth group in a way that says, we're not frantic about this. Because we know that God is at work. We're here participating with Him. And so I'm not scrambling around, deathly afraid of what happens if this doesn't work. And the irony is that confidence draws a bigger crowd. A little bit ironic. As long as you want your group to be big, probably not going to be. Get over it, just be yourself. You probably have more people than you thought you would. Why? Because God is at work. And I'll say this, it's very easy to get frantic about youth ministry. Why? Because the parents of your teenagers are frantic. There's no greater feeling than being a parent of a teenager than abject fear. It's nerve-wracking. And it's also guilt-producing. Do you realize we ought to have a whole module on uh, pastoring the parents of your youth? Um, because I'm telling you, by the time a child gets into their high school age, not only are they afraid of what their child will become, because bad decisions are starting to kind of hatch more often than they did. They're coming faster rate. But the other thing they're feeling is, is this was my fault. Sometimes it's absurd. I knew I should have breastfed longer. Okay, I think you're all right on that one. 
At other times, it's like I told him that his alcoholism was going to destroy our family, and now I can see it in my children. Sometimes it's heavy stuff that goes on. And so we come with a confidence that says, it's okay, God is at work. Um, it's easy to get frantic about the decision that was made in New York last week to allow abortions all the way up to the third trimester. It's easy to look at that and suddenly panic. But here's the deal. Molech has been collecting his children for a long time now. It's ramping up because he's threatened. That's exactly why that's happening. But we look and say, God, does it work? There's a providential assumption that he is marching through history and he will do his thing. And I'm participating in that. And so you know what? I'll leave the franticness up to him. And he ain't frantic. He's executing all his holy will. And I'm going to be faithful to what God has called me to do here. Do not be reactionary. Number three. We talk about the, the presupposition of the church. Now look, remember, the church is very fundamental. I, I tried to put the church on you in our purpose, right? Cross and church being the things that God was doing to heal broken vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. But the church as a presupposition is a statement of saying, I am not here as the less newsome show. Okay? Uh, this is, I, I'm, not, I'm not an individual Babs Murray coming here to talk to y'all. There's an institution called Westside Presbyterian Church that's behind me. Is that what they're calling it? Westside Presbyterian? West End. West End. Dang it. I like it uh, West End. I'll go to the West Side. West Side. <laughs> Sounds like some games. Um, um, West End Presbyterian. Like, I've got this group of elders who have sent me here. The church has me here. That's supposed to give some confidence to you that your posture is one that I'm not alone. And you know, if your church is doing it right, there's a lot of protection there. I know that church discipline ain't what it used to be because people are like, whatever, I'll go to just the next church. But there's, there's a sense in which people ought to feel a sense of loss if they leave our churches. You know? That they gave me protection. They gave me love. They gave me financial aid when I needed it. Um, so the church brings the confidence here. Number four. We focus on the individual. This is a big one. The presupposition of this one talks about an individual assumption that says, you know, I'm not going to cookie cutter you. I want to treat you as if you're unique. So I'm not here just to get you into my magical ministry tool. Les, we have found this incredible program. You know, you plug in student A and out comes righteous student B. It's awesome. You know, the faddishness of these kind of programs kind of build up. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of those programs may be awesome and use them as much as you can use them. But also with the spirit of saying, all these people are so different. This sweet little precious innocent homeschool girl is going to do something so different than this inner city kid who just joined our group is going through. Can I deal with them as, as individuals? Is it okay for me to stop trying to get them all together in one Bible study? Let's just start a second Bible study. Let's not work at it. Um, I, talked about, about this, I was talking to a youth, youth uh, director uh, uh, in Alabama years ago who was wrestling with the cool kid versus the uncool kid dynamic. He's like, I have to try for the last two years failing over trying to get the cool kids to reach out to the not cool kids and the not cool kids to quit condescending to the cool kids. And I was like, why are you fighting that? Start two Bible studies. Uh, 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 we want them to be unified. Like, well, yeah. But you're not going to do that by arbitrarily just throw them into one thing. Start two groups. I don't know if I can do that. Now, that may have been horrible advice. But the point is, um, I'm going to treat people as if they're individuals. I can look at them and say, this is all right. What, what's the rule that I'm applying here that keeps you from being able to sit back inside the box? Number five. What am I forgetting, Parrot? I expect you to know all these. I don't know these at all. That's not my 
Give me the, give, read them out to me. Uh, reformed understanding of the Bible, God is at work, church, family, the individual, the learning process, demographics. Ah, learning process, learning process. All right, I think I might have messed up family here. Are there seven? That's seven, isn't it? Family and the learning process? Mm-hmm. All right, family. Look, basically what this says is, is when, when the presupposition of the family is a statement that says, I'm not going to treat this student as if he's not part of a system. <coughs> Look, um, family is the most fundamental socializing unit in your student's life. Duh. Okay? That's going to be the most formational and foundational to us. That's the way God designed it. Okay? And so once I dive into the life of a, of a student, I cannot begin to ask that question without figuring out what the dynamics are in his family. It's not hard to do. You know, find, find those questions that really sort of pierce that, that armor. Um, so are you more like your mom or your dad? Oh, I'm totally like my dad. I'm nothing like my mom. Really? Why do you say that? Well, my dad is so laid back. So you know, what is he doing? He's describing himself. <coughs> After he said, I'm so much like my dad, how so? He starts describing his dad. He's describing himself, or at least what he thinks about himself, or what he wishes he could be, right? And then he slides in there. He's like, I just, I'm my mom. I just, mm, we don't get along at all. Huh. What's going on with your mom? And suddenly you got something that you can dig at, something that you're looking at. That means that you look at this person as if not that he is a pure individual. Uh, in other words, we've not necessarily succeeded just because he prayed to ask Jesus into his heart. The question is, what are you doing in the dynamic of your family? Is God redeeming that place? It a good start to talk about the family dynamics. Learning process. What in the world is this? The learning process is simply the way in which we say people come to own, O-W-N. How do you say own? What's the Midwestern way to say O-W-N? Own. Own. Okay, I'm just checking. <coughs> I feel like that didn't sound right. Uh, anyway, so own. People come to own information different ways, and most people in our circles think that people learn information by being told. All right? Teaching. But as it turns out, learning comes in a lot of different avenues. Sometimes, oftentimes, it comes from having it demonstrated to them. Yeah, show them. You know? It may be that you can talk to people about forgiveness Till, they're, till you're blue in the face. But until they see you forgive them for something, it doesn't really land. Jean Valjean, right? You know, until he sees the priest you know, give him the candlesticks, uh, there's not, a, there's not a, a, an example for him to follow. Secondly, you've got to observe people long enough to know ex- actually how they're processing material. And then you've got to actually encourage them. You've got to evaluate them on where they are and then encourage them through the process. So the learning process comes through a number of avenues. We use a little acronym that goes T-D-O-E-E, teaching, demonstrating, observing, evaluating, and then encouraging. Okay? T-D-O-E-E. That's the learning process. People come to grasp that information, not just by being fooled, uh, but by um, uh, seeing it happen for themselves. Finally, at long last, demographics are 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 a presupposition. 
What that means is, is when we go into a place, we want to understand it as best as we can. <clears throat> How can you attribute the success that Tim Keller had in New York City? One of the biggest things that he says, he, a decision that he made when he got there in 88-89, was he became a student of the city. In his free time, and you want to talk about nerdy, he's actually very socially awkward. I'm not going to lie to you. He's not like a, he's not like a, a, a budding socialite. Um, but in his free time, he would grab a travel book that would be talking. I know it's on the recording. <laughs> I would tell him this. Um, um, he would get a travel book and go traveling through neighborhoods and read the travel book to read about the neighborhood, to, to figure out what the history of the neighborhood was. You know, it's pretty nerdy. Um, but he became a student of his context. Um, it's very hard when all of a sudden your imagination drifts off to better jobs because you hate your present demographic. And then you get that. You've got reasons to hate it, right? Familiarity always breeds contempt, but it loses something. You've got to remind ourselves that part of our, part of our posture that I'm going to bring to this conversation about ministry, part of my posture is going to be knowing my context. What is the girl-to-guy ratio? Let's do a little survey. Um, at least, at least once a month, I would ask my lead, student leadership team to tell me what it was like to be a freshman at Ole Miss as often as I could ask them because I don't want to ever assume that I know what that is. I'm doing the same thing with the youth now on Sunday nights. Tell me what it's like to be a, in high school at Oxford High School. Um, don't ever assume that you know that already. Okay? So you see what happens when all of a sudden these things start to work their way into your thinking about ministry? You end up being flexible in a non-arbitrary way. You say, you know, this is how I'm going to process what I'm doing and come up with a ministry plan. Um, but in the end, my methodology is going to be adaptable because of these. All right? Any questions about the uh, presuppositions? We aim for clarity and alignment in our behaviors. All right, we've arrived at the last thing. Yes. What? Is it 337? Yeah. Better hurry. Now, what do we mean by ministry dynamics? Ministry dynamics. Die. Man, okay. Not a strong stubborn. Dynamics. Ministry dynamics are descriptions of the processes and the interaction interactions that take place between what we would call the elements of ministry and your plan for how you're going to execute those things. All right, it's a lot of stuff. It's, a talk, it's talking about the processes, things that over time RYM people <coughs> have noticed that constitute wisdom with regard to how to execute ministry. Let me give you a couple handfuls of them. Number one, we need to talk about soul care. One of the reasons why RYM Youth Train LYT exists is for you to get yourself taken care of. You will waste away if you don't have a group of people that you're meeting with to talk about your frustrations and to share your hurts and your joys and your successes and to pray with those group of people. That takes care of your soul. And by the way, if you're only doing it once a year here, you got another problem because it takes more than that. Are you collecting around yourself places that restore your soul and you don't constantly just pour yourself out? Do you know what that is? I've talked to a lot of people that are like, I just don't know. I don't know what is it that 
I, I, I don't know if I've got any hobbies. I'm too busy to have a hobby. You need to get a hobby. It means that there's a part of looking and saying, this may have to do with my exercise. Now, there's so much shame attached to exercising. I feel, I feel that, you know, in a big way. I'm not what you would call an athlete, okay? When I was in high school, I was on the football team. I choose my words carefully. I did not say I played football. I was on the football team. And no one loved me enough to tell me, you're not an athlete, Les, right? But I'm telling you, I can remember going, I, I remember very vividly what it was like to enter a weight room as a shrimpy, non-athletic dude, you know, waiting on puberty with bated breath, right? Hoping something would change. I remember, and I'm telling you, I'm triggered by that stuff. And so exercise has kind of got a thing for me. That's part of my growth process is figuring out how to make that healthy. So there's, a, there's an aspect of ministry dynamics that talk about soul care. Uh, we can spend a lot of time on this one, but we don't, we don't have it. Number two, we can talk about things like evangelism and discipleship. We've got to do a lot of thinking in this area. There'll be lots of seminars that we offer for you in this particular topic. You know, one of the great tragedies, I think, of evangelistic um, efforts in our day is that they have been so devoid of the doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. And someone really needs to write this book. Somebody in this room needs to go ahead and write this book of an evangelistic plan that is centered around this simple idea. Bring someone to church. Come with me. Come and see. Build it off of John 1. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. No, that's, that's woman at the well. Um, come and see all the invitations that all the disciples, the apostles make to each other. Come and see. Um, um, and again, I know you're thinking, oh, I don't want to come to my church. I get that. But that's the church's problem. That's not evangelism's problem. But think about the benefit of actually bringing people into a body so they can try Christianity on in some degree before they buy into it. Wouldn't that make our baptisms have that much more authenticity? And then how are people rethinking discipleship? You know, what's happened, I think, in a lot of church cultures is the D group has become its own, its own meritorious <coughs> thing. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm all about D groups. I wish I was in a D group. But it's very easy for those kind of things to become like, well, what's about a D group? You know, check the box. When really, is there, is there actual life on life formation that's happening <coughs> in those groups? Is it? Is community really building? I think this is especially difficult among guys. Um, when I was 30, 31 years old, relatively newly married, uh, new father, um, I had a, a, a weekend with some of my friends from high school. Okay, we'd been apart from each other for 12, 13 years. Uh, <laughs> and we were kind of talking, and we sort of had to have this sort of come to Jesus meeting where we were like, you know, the only sort of real conversation we had with each other when we were growing up was sarcasm. That's about all we had. <laughs> and you, that is so pathetic. I always like the joke that we make with our youth group now is kind of like, guys, is there any way in which you can actually look at another guy and be like, man, that play was awesome, and not have to preface it with like, I ain't gay or nothing, you know? That was supposed to be funny. Whoever snickered got it. Appreciate that. All right, just didn't land. I mean, I ain't gay or nothing, but uh, you look good in that tie, Um, or something. That has encouragement in it. Right. Can you imagine a high school dude encouraging another high school dude? I can't even picture it in my mind. It doesn't exist. That is, that is bereft of value. Like, that is horrible. And so there's a sense in which discipleship, life on life, is like, we may have to do some life skills. 
What do we do to encourage one another? Because what's happening is we're getting together and they're reading their Bibles. Don't do anything less than that. But there's more than that. There's actually formation that's involved. I actually like that new sort of, that's a new style word, spiritual formation. I'm down with it. I like it. Because it sort of gets at the idea that this has got to be a little more profound than just a program of discipleship where we're cranking people through their homework. Everybody does homework. All my girls do homework. Actually, my dad would say homework. Why is it just a girl? Because the dudes are just not going to do it. No. What else? Let's do another one. Let's talk about um, um, stages of group development. Stages of group development. You know, a group builds in a very specific way. That's a nice little piece of wisdom that came to us. We found out early on that a group begins with an individual, you, the, the youth director, learning to relate and connect to individuals. Okay? You have a relationship with them. You have to learn, as a youth director, to let people walk away from their interactions with you and say this. You know what? She really gets me. She saw the world through my eyes. They won't articulate it that way, but that's what they'll walk away with because that's what they want. Brene Brown, who a bunch of her books are on the table right now, please buy up as much Brene Brown as you can, says that we are hardwired for connection. That's really all we want. All I want to know is that there's someone in the world who will walk away and see the world through my eyes, that I'm not alone. And so what happens is, is you build a group by having individuals that walk away with that sense from you, which hopefully leads you to stage two of group development, which is where, and oftentimes through your initiation, people kind of start to connect with each other. They're having the same experience with each other, right? You're still connected to those individuals, but sometimes even through your involvement, you're introducing people together. What does it mean for you to work a room at your large group meeting? Let's say you've got a Bible study, 30, 40, 50, some <coughs> students come to it. What are you doing when you work that room? Because part of what, what you ought to be doing is being like, ooh, 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 come here, I want you to meet this person over here. You have to know this person. And did you know that they go to your school? They sit right there, y'all in the same class. Did y'all even know that? <laughs> That's part of it, trying to create connections. And of course, it'll terrify and be like, why do they do that? Uh, but it's part of where we're headed, right? Creating some of those bonds there. That's sort of the group where people start to form. Now, look, um, John Mulaney has a hilarious bit on this. Um, anybody know John Mulaney? Oh my goodness. There's lots of inappropriate there, but there's lots funny there as well. Um, where he talks about like um, about the formation of cliques. Y'all shouldn't have cliques. And he's like, do you mean friends? <laughs> um, they're going to group up. There are healthy cliques and unhealthy cliques, but you don't want to avoid cliques. A clique is a good thing if you mean a group of friends. Okay? Um, an unhealthy clique is a group of people standing in a circle and everybody's looking into the circle. A healthy clique is people standing in a circle and everybody's facing out, welcoming, coming in. Because why? Because I know I got, these people got my back. That's different. Third, eventually what happens is these groups sort of coalesce into individuals, small groups, and larger than small groups, and it becomes a thing. Suddenly your youth group is a thing. This is where conferences help a lot. Bring them to RYM this summer, and all of a sudden you'll see people talking to each other across things. You'll find out that this person who was in this clique over here actually had a date with somebody over there. He asked her to formal. What? 
Where do they meet each other? In youth group. When did that happen? This is great because now you're in stage three of group development. Stages four and five have to do with leadership development. Stages four are where you identify leaders and you're starting to train them. And stage five is where they're actually taking action, or what we call a true group. What's interesting about these stages is they all have to be worked all the time. It's not chronological in its progression. Because you can always go back, by the way. You can look and say, you know, we're stage three, but then all of a sudden, guess what happened? Graduation. So we had to back up over here. But there's nothing better than the stage of group development to let you know where you are. Because we want to build a student group. Why? Because we want to teach them about the church. I want to teach them what it's like. I remember having students in my office that would come to talk about their roommates. This is college, college thing. They'd be like, I just feel so stupid talking about my roommate. And I'm like, why would that be stupid? That's where the action is in the Christian life. Learning to get along with one another because we're building the church. And look, the conflicts that go on. I sit there and listen on Sunday night to the hateful junk. And all the guys were kind of, I got, I got, I got like eight ninth grade guys and like, seven uh, sophomore and junior girls in this group. And the guys are so condescending. They're like, oh, girl, crazy. All they do is fight and la, 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 la. And I'm like, do y'all ever be anything but sarcastic to each other? They're like, no. You know, so no one is doing very well at learning to get along. Okay? And the stage of group of that will help you know where you are in that process. Okay? How am I doing? How am I doing? All right, I got, I got time for one more. Or do I? Let me, let me just say this. I don't have time for Q&A. These are three examples of stuff that should continue to go on. Stone is doing stuff like this. Stone is doing a thing on leadership right now. These end up becoming our seminar offerings at RYM. They're wisdom that people have gleaned over the ages in order to teach you how to make sure that the things that you believe are not contradicted by the things that you do. That's what ministry dynamics do, okay? There's things just like this. And again, like I said, there's, there's 50. We ought to be discovering these every year, right? Uh, and giving tools and resourcing ourselves to be able to do these things uh, better than we've done in the past, right? So those are what we call ministry dynamics. <coughs> that is, the, again, the, what was the seminar about today? It was about what is a philosophy of ministry. That's the whole thing. I tried to talk to you about how culture affects philosophy ministry, where our values place in that. And now, in this afternoon, I tried to give you a conceptual recommendation about how RYM wants you to think about it. There's a whole lot more we could do in this regard, but I'm going to leave that for time saves. Let's have some time for Q&A. It's only 10 minutes left. So I've got one. What, what's something on the ministry dynamics list that you would say belongs there now that maybe didn't 10 years ago? Um, the stuff we were talking about on, on uh, systems theory. That sounds so esoteric, I even hesitate to put it that way. But I will say that I have, I have grown a lot in not just talking about how to develop a group, but how to manage a group. If you, if you uh, stray as a youth director in your church, it's likely because you weren't aware of, uh, of, of the systems that were at play in your church. Um, you, know, you came in with a very idealistic view of leadership. But you didn't realize that there's actually, you know, there's official leadership that have the title, and then there's unofficial authorities that, that everybody listens to, you know, because they carry all the weight. I'm not sure how that happened to them, but they carry all the weight. 
And what happens is we end up sort of not being aware of those dynamics and we mess up on them and they create chaos. And eventually people want to relieve the stress and either you get fired or the church splits, which is bad. And so I think to some degree, giving people awareness of what it means to be a part of a group is a major leadership challenge. Stone is doing this stuff on culture development and a lot of it has to do with being aware of what you're bringing to the table as a self-differentiated, non-anxious presence. Um, <clears throat> I've got a bunch of other ones uh, <clears throat> in the ministry dynamics. But again, the point of that one is to say, that's what we all want to be gathering and doing here. Um, um, oh, oh, I know one. One of the big things back here that we talk about <coughs> is um, understanding the student or what we might call student problems. Someone needs to be coming on a regular basis at training and offering you uh, wisdom about what the deal is with the kids today. Right? That's not, un that's not unrelated to the importance of, uh, of your ministry time. Hang on just one second. <clears throat> Almost there. Oh, oh I know. All right, let's, let's do it this way. I get a lot of questions about what ministry dynamics are. Um, there's a guy in Oxford who, well, it's our, it's our, our now campus minister at Ole Miss. Brian Sorgenfry moved to Oxford and uh, uh, built a house before he got there. He lives out right around the corner from me. So I told him I needed a friend in Oxford, and he moved to Oxford. Well, my wife is one of those people that just loves to walk through, walk through houses that are being built. Let's go walk through it. Um, <laughs> she wants to guess where the, where the rooms are going to be and stuff. I love it. I've gotten to where I love it now to do the same thing. She's just beside herself when she does. Um, but we were walking through, and we looked in the backyard, and we noticed that there was a landscaping problem. They had a hill in their backyard, and it came down, and basically the hill met at their uh, back porch. And I was like, ooh. I said, I'm no landscaper, but this is a problem. And so I kept calling Brian. I was like, look, they need to do their landscaping you know, sooner rather than later. I said, because this is going to build up water. Every rain's going to be bad, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and um, it was funny. They waited until literally two days before they had to move in for the landscaper finally shows up and sure shooting, what they did was they took the hill down much steeper to a little trough in the yard and so they came up slightly to the patio, right? And what was interesting about it was, I was like, ugh, is that, is that trough gonna be deep enough? Like, is this really gonna work? And the crazy thing was, it did. He's never had water on his patio. And it suddenly occurred to me, I thought, that's a great illustration for a ministry dynamic. Because a landscaper knows what? He knows what his tools are, or what I'm calling his elements. Uh, he's got a grader. He's got ideas about erosion. Uh, he understands kind of the processes of, um, uh, uh, of how water flows, of what soil composition can do to soak things in or create runoff. He knows those things. And so what does he do? He walks into a yard and he puts together a plan to do so. But the goal of being a good landscaper is not knowing the one magical tool that fixes everybody's yard. And he's got to be aware of these processes, these dynamics that go on in yard erosion and plants and whatever else so that he can make you, make you a place that doesn't flood your patio, right? 
That's what you're trying to do. You want to be aware of the processes. I know how students think because I've been studying it. I've consumed their social media to as much as I can, their pop culture. I'm into to as much as I can without bruising my own conscience. I've, I've made myself a student of where they are. So being aware of student problems is one of those big dynamics we've got to be aware of as well. So the landscaper illustration. I think that was my last one. Yep, 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 yep. Yep. Oh, man, I can't believe I forgot this one. This one's a big one. Learning about the avenues of ministry. The avenues of ministry are basically the ways in which you can be with people. And you can be with people one of three ways. You can be with people one-on-one. -on -one. You can be with people in a small group. Or you can be with people in a large group. But here's my question. Do you know how those things are different? Uh, a number of years ago, this is probably 10 years ago, I was meeting with a youth director who was just having a terrible time of discouragement with trying to get a Bible study together to reach kind of a critical mass. And um, I was like, well, tell me about what you ended up doing. He's like, well, we kind of got together. We had 10 or 12 people at first. I was like, all right. He goes, well, it was great at first. He said, but within like three or four weeks, there were two. You know, they were the homeschool people that were being forced to be there. I was like, okay, okay, I get it. Homeschool people get a bad rap for that kind of stuff. It was the homeschool people. Um, <laughs> um, you know, some of you that were homeschool, but like, is that how they talked about us? Um, but what happened was, is I said, well, tell me about your Bible study. What kind of stuff did y'all do? He's like, well, you know, I mean, uh, I told him we were going to sing for a little bit and sort of worship for a bit. I said, whoop, whoop, stop, stop. I said, you wanted to do worship. I said, how many people were there? He said, oh, 10 to 12. It's like, okay. So you got to understand that when it comes to the avenues, different things are appropriate to different size groups. Like in a one-on-one, -on -one, you can get away with having a very personal conversation. Okay? What, 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 okay, you're saying somebody touched you inappropriately. Tell me what that means. You don't have that conversation in a small group. It's not right. You do that one-on-one. -on -one. It's personal for that kind of thing. In a small group, you let people sort of interact. People can spew heresy in a small group, and it's okay. Because they need to feel like they processed it themselves. But here's the deal. Worship elements only really work when you're in a group that's, that's in a large group between 25 and 30 people. The reason he killed his group is because he tried to sing with 10 people in the room. Come on now. If there were 10 people in this room, and I was like, let's sing a little bit. <laughs> no one's going to say no because you just don't say that in a religious context, but you're going to be like, okay, are we doing this now? Uh, praise to the Lord. It's going to be awkward because it just is. It's only when you get over 25 to 30 people that that actually ceases to be weird. You follow me? What, what happened? He didn't have wisdom about the avenues of ministry. But once you learn to deploy these things, you've got to be a student of like, what is a one-on-one? -on -one? How do I do a one-on-one -on -one well? What, what, what can get away with in a small group? If you notice something awkward here, a small group is between 7 and 12 people. Maybe 15 if you're really lucky. But some of you are saying, okay, but a large group is 25 to 30. What if I've got 17? Answer, you're in no man's land. And it's hard. 17 to 20 people is a difficult-sized group. It just is. Because you don't feel like you can discuss, and you don't feel like you can lecture. So you've got to come up with these weird amalgams. There's a lot of you that are in that zone. And I'm here to tell you, it's okay. Give it time. And don't feel bad if you feel like you've got to split this up so you get tr two true small groups. But that's part of what I'm saying is, we're back to the landscaper. A landscaper knows that this is how his tools work. 
Do you know how your tools work? So that when you deploy them, you're doing them with wisdom. So that's creating a desired effect to be able to grow my group the way in which I'd like to. That's a ministry dynamic. Okay? Yeah. I guess I could do the Pentagon, but I don't have time to do the Pentagon. Not in 30 seconds. <laughs> Pentagon is nothing more than, a, than, than taking... <coughs> Maybe I can do the 30 seconds. <laughs> Church. Non-churched. Churched. Okay. Um, cross. <laughs> no cross. Okay? Converted, unconverted. Remember church and cross from the, pur- from the purpose thing? Combine these two things and you get a little um, quadrant thing. In the upper right, you have people that are converted and they are in your church. Over here, you've got people that are converted, but they are not in your church. Over here, you've got people that you think are not converted. <coughs> Jesus has not redeemed their heart, but they're in your church. And over here you've got people that are not converted. And they are not in your church. Okay? This is how you categorize people in that pentagon. So if you blow this thing out into a pentagon, you put these categories in these areas. And in here are your avenues. So I decide how I'm going to deploy my one-on-ones, my small groups, and my large groups, and by the way, my conferences into these four areas. And everybody's like, that's overly complicated. Why are you doing that? Because if you begin to evaluate your students through this grid, you've owned our values. You've owned our purpose. And I'll never forget this. One of the first times I taught this, this was the second time I taught this, when we started this, this seminar, like 1997. <clears throat> there was a guy, he was awesome. He raised his hand in some first row. He was like, can I ask a question? I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, look, I've been doing youth ministry for about a year and a half now. And if there's anything I've learned about young people, it is that, like, they don't want you to put them in a box. I don't think people react that well to be put in a box. And I was like, okay. All right, that's valid. That's valid. Um, you're a little condescending, but that's okay. Um, I was like, but here's my deal. You're putting them in some kind of box. I know you want to think that you're the ah box person, but you're not. <laughs> We, there is an innate instinct that we have to categorize people. Let's be honest. You've done this since you were a kid. You walk into a social setting and you're kind of like, hmm, where do I fit here? It's a lunchroom mentality. Lunchroom is still as bad as it ever was, by the way. I was talking to him about it Sunday night. Lunchroom is the devil. Where am I going to sit? Right? Um, which group do I belong in? You're putting people in categories. The cool people, there's the not so cool people. That was my decision in fifth grade. When I came home and realized there were two groups of people and I'm going to be in a cool group no matter what i got to do. We're just saying that if you do it thoughtlessly and reactionary, it's going to be bad. And so therefore, why not look and say, man, can I take the students, of, I'm give, me, give me my role, my, 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 uh, my roster, okay? Take the 27 people in my youth group that I've got contact with. Let's plot them. Not to sort of value them in some way. So you're trying to say we're trying to get everybody up here? But, yeah, but that's not what this tool is for. The Pentagon is trying to help you take a snapshot of where you are. You know what's crazy is, we've got all these people coming from that church down the road whose youth director had an affair a while back. That's weird. That's a dynamic right there. It's like half my group coming from that other youth group. That's kind of strange. Or you look and realize, man, since that neighborhood kind of turned about two miles away, we're getting a lot of like urban type people in our group. 
That's a dynamic. They're not a member of this church. They're just coming to use the gym to play basketball. How do I, how do I minister to them? You're getting a snapshot of your, of your youth group that is in keeping with how RYM values things. And that's why I say that we are a conceptual recommendation. You can drive home and be like, you know what, I think I can do that so much better. Knock yourself out. And I, I don't mean that in a, in, in a, in a dismissive way. It may be that you dream up something better, but have a plan. Have a way of looking at it. All right, final questions. That's what that, that was the Pentagon. That was in, that was, that was in two, two and a half minutes. It came out <coughs> in 30 seconds. Don't you hate the person who, like when you were in college, they said, well, if there are no other questions, we'll go ahead and dismiss. Someone's like, <laughs> and it's always that person who's like the continuing education person. You know, they're like in their 40s and they just wanted to come back to school, you know, and take some classes. This is so great to be here. I feel like I'm young again. I've got a question about the syllabus. Maybe shut up. Hey, um, oh, first of all, oh, last thing. Um, please let me uh, know if I can help in any way. Um, we love the ministry of, of RYM. We support it at my church. Uh, if I can help you in any way, please feel free to email me. Um, uh, I will quickly get you away from email and to texting or some other medium because it's much better. Um, but I'd love to interact with you in any way that I can. There is no E at the end of Newsom. Some way to distinguish my ancestry. But everything inside you is going to want to put that E on there. You'll feel it. It'll be like a compulsion. But it's not there. Look at those deer. Look at those deer. Look at them going. Wow. Oh, a bunch of dough. I mean, just cooking it across there. Anyway. I'm leaving. I'm sorry. I'm getting my car and head back to Oxford. I got to be. We got the. Uh, we have the owners rep coming in tomorrow for uh, another discussion about the sanctuary. I love that you said that. I love that you feel my pain on that. Can I pray for y'all and close out the day for us? Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that you have raised up these people. They're here for a reason. This is not an accident. Uh, they're, not, uh, they are not, um, they're not peripheral to the work of the kingdom. These people are on the front lines of what you're doing in the world around us. And I, am so, I for one, am so grateful. Uh, and so I'm asking for you in their hearing uh, to bless them, to give them success in whatever way that success looks, that you would extend their territory, that you would grow their groups, uh, that they would see student leadership moving forward and advancing your kingdom. Father, all the things that in our best moments we really do want. We're not trying to put on our own show or, or gratify our egos. We just want you to be at work in our midst. Would you do that? We really do ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.